Hello and welcome to In Search of Black Power. I'm Lawrence Grand Prix. And I'm Rasheen. <laughs> so we're doing something a little bit different this time. I am here at the LBS office and Rasheen is in her brand new home, home that she's setting up and just bought. So congratulations there. Um, so a few months ago, because we do record some of these episodes uh, beforehand, we recorded an episode on reproductive justice where we talked about some of the deeper issues related to the movement historically. Again, we like to do evergreen content here, so it's not like chasing the news cycle. So I just got into some conversations about like, you know, some of the deeper aspects of reproductive justice and black people, pan-Africanism or history. Then of course, as we were planning to do our release schedule of what to be released when Roe v. Wade, one of the two most important and two most well-known Supreme Court presidents in American history was officially overturned by the Supreme Court decision Dobbs versus Jackson. So with that, we just decided to hop on StreamYard and to just do this addendum, this uh, prequel, because we're going to release the episode we did because so much of that content was evergreen. Um, but we also just wanted, didn't want to release something on reproductive justice not acknowledge that it was overturned. So uh, again, the Supreme Court and the conservatives voted together, uh, six of them versus uh, the three liberal judges to um, support the case by the city of Mississippi, represented by the health secretary, whose last name was Dobbs, against uh, uh, the ja uh, Jackson is actually like Jackson Woman's Reproductive Clinic, who was actually trying to defend uh, their opposition to a uh, Mississippi law, which uh, was supposed to be a 15-week abortion ban. So the Supreme Court could have just decided to do a 15-week abortion ban and leave Roe intact, but. There is a powerful legal conservative movement that um, many of them are Catholic, many of them believe that a life begins at conception. Many of them see Roe as the codification of decadence and uh, liberal permit moral permissiveness taking over the country. They've just used Roe as their target for 40, 50 years. And so people have been appointed to the court with the explicit focus of being willing to overturn Roe v. Wade. So with that, there were multiple different things written about why the judges decided the way they did, but uh, Judge Samuel Alito, who is a Catholic, basically wrote the majority opinion, basically stating that uh, rules around rights, because again, people saw it wasn't abortion a right, how did it take a right away? <laughs> you know, so basically saying that Roe was wrongly decided in his opinion, subsequent cases that codified Roe, supported Roe, he says were also wrongfully decided, i.e. Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which was decided in the 90s, which upheld Roe, but also upheld restrictions to abortion. Basically saying that he wants, in his opinion, in the opinion of the court, you have to look at rights being rooted in the history of America, and abortion obviously is not in the Constitution. It's not, in his opinion, rooted deeply in the history of America, going all the way back to like European common law and just some esoteric stuff. So basically, using that to do the conservative uh, move, which is to say that we don't think this stuff is supported by anything in the Constitution. So therefore, it is legal for states to restrict abortion. That's not mean as a nationwide abortion ban, but states like Mississippi 
who was the entity um, appealing a lower court decision, basically saying that they have the right to completely eliminate the procedure, the medical procedure of abortion in their states, if they so choose. And that was part of Alito's whole argument, which is, I'm not banning abortion. I'm leaving it up to the states. If they choose to ban abortion, then they can do it. So yeah. that's the argument that's going on, is that states have the right to allow abortion or to completely, completely, and that's the key word, ban abortion, including the Supreme Court did not make any exceptions to this. So states can ban abortion if they choose to, and many of them are, uh, despite if it's a case of incest, even if it's a case of rape, or even if the life of the mother is in jeopardy by not um, eliminating the pregnancy. So this obviously, um, it's been, it's, they've been chipping away at Roe for years. Abortion clinics were under attack and not able to do many services in many conservative states for like decades now. So this just codifies, this puts the final nail in the coffin of nationwide protections for women's reproductive health around the issue of um, family planning and choosing whether that uh, goes through with a pregnancy or not. Yeah, uh, good encapsulation of that. Um, I think I think one of the things that you mentioned that I think deserves to be highlighted a, a little bit um, is a question that I'm hearing is like, how can a constitutional right be changed without the Constitution changing? And I and mm -hmm. what I remember, one of the main things uh, 50 years ago uh, with Roe v. Wade is that it was it was part of protecting liberty and privacy. And now it's considered not a protection of specifically liberty or privacy. And mm -hmm. you think, as you mentioned earlier, uh, last year we were talking about the uh, fatal heartbeat, fetal heartbeat, sorry, uh, mm -hmm. the fetal heartbeat uh, ban. And I think it's really important to identify whether or not a thing is a ban or not a ban. However, the way in which I feel like it's being twisted to use, it's like, oh, it's not really that big of a deal. But there is uh, some things that's happening in terms of like the continual impact that it's happening, right? Mm -hmm. So we have 22 states um, that are drastically impacted like from my last count. Um, yeah, we, we have the map that hopefully we can show on screen right now. So there are certain states that have these things called trigger laws. So mm -hmm. literally, they wrote in the state law and passed a state law, which is the second Roe v. Wade is overturned. Abortion is illegal in the state. And mm -hmm. you can see the states, and I guess that's purplish, light brown. Those are the trigger law states. So abortion is illegal in those states right now. Now, there are certain dark orange or reddish states on this map that you might be looking at that are um, almost certain to ban abortion. So they don't have it yet, but they are on the cusp. They are just about to do it. Um, and then there are some states that have laws on the books from like the 1920s. Again, the, the, the legal situation is chaos right now. There are some states that have laws on the books from like 1920s saying abortion is illegal. Roe basically superseded that state law. And now the old state law is about to come back into effect. So so you can, again, the many states in the South, Midwest, the uh, uh, Rust Belt, in some states in you know the uh, Mountain West, Big Sky Country, Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, Arizona. Um, and again, some of these states were previously seen as more libertarian, like Colorado and Nevada. So, so that they're not shaded in because they're conservative and more libertarian. But yeah, um, so to answer your initial question, Remember, the Constitution was written by a bunch of old white people 200 years ago. So they, they didn't really have a language to account for modern issues. So the word abortion is not in the Constitution. So you right. have to look at 
um, like an umbrella. So if you have like, you know, the Fourth Amendment says you are not subject to search and seizure without due process. So basically, based upon the Fourth Amendment, different legal scholars have said, well, that assumes a certain right to privacy. The word privacy is not in the Constitution. So, but people look at the amendments and they say, well, you got the Fourth Amendment that says no search and seizure, like the king of England can't come into your house and steal your muskets and stuff mm -hmm. like that, you know. But there's also the Ninth Amendment, which says that just because we didn't say it here doesn't mean that it's not a right. So that's like the Ninth Amendment to allow you to expand upon what's in the Constitution. But the conservatives have been really strategic about interpreting things to their will. So the, the way that the court works is that you're basically just trying to apply the Constitution to contemporary problems, and people can kind of do whatever they want. So you got to remember, the court is a lifetime appointment. So they're not up for election, but they do listen to and care about politics because the people who appoint them are elected officials, and they don't want to make them look too bad and crazy. So in, in the 60s and 70s, women's liberation was a social movement. The birth control pill had just uh, came about, so sexual liberation, women entering the workplace, came in their autonomy. And so that was just incredible pressure on the justices in the 60s and 70s to like make space for the possibility of abortion. Because of just a larger trajectory of America pushing that way of thinking as what you should do, like a logical thing to do in the face of a changing society. Now, judges aren't supposed to care about that stuff, but they do. Like legal theorists say over and over again, they care about these things. But when you have these conservative presidents, they appoint justices whose entire worldview are these incredibly conservative social networks, where the only thing, where it's not just what they hear from their friends, it's how you get a job in the uh, teaching law, it's how you get a job at a law firm, it's how you get a job publishing books about law. You need to be anti-abortion, anti-Roe to do any of those things within their social networks. So these very, very powerful forces have done an excellent job of cultivating a social climate, a professional climate, and a legal methodology that literally is called originalism, textualism. If the word abortion is not in the Constitution, then you don't have a right to an abortion. And when you have enough money and power, you can just repeat those things enough times and they become true because you have the power to back it up. So that's also, why. Yeah, I just want to say, I also feel like it's not just that um, conservative folks are particularly savvy. I think they're persistent and consistent. And I also think that there's a way in which uh, there's been opportunities for folks in the Democratic Party to actually make some changes, uh, whether we go to. Clinton saying, oh, it should it be should be safe, legal, and rare, which is like not really saying a whole bunch. Um, Obama kind of ran on this idea of uh, the Freedom of Choice Act and then kind of walked that back a bit. So it's like, it's not that, it's not just that one side is more, more savvy. I think they're just more persistent, very focused. Yeah. Uh, they got a person who just basically let them do their own appointing of judges, really. Um, and, they, and they didn't let... They, they didn't care about all of these other things that I feel like uh, folks in the Democratic Party would care about, like mm -hmm. these social things, whether it's the grab by the pussy or this comment or that column or the yeah. Mueller report or all. It was like none of that matter because we are we are singularly focused. So I, I feel like they were persistent and focused. And I feel like Democrats had plenty of opportunity to start to counter that in ways. And no one really seemed to like really step up to plate when they had the opportunity to actually do something. So this is why you can have this, re this gradual progression of 
uh, infringement on 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 women's bodily autonomy. So we're all the way up to at this point, where a 15 weeks, 15 weeks of pregnancy is illegal. And a lot of times, most most people, I'm sorry, yeah, uh, and, yeah. yeah, most it, people don't even know that they they Say it again. I, I'm sorry, but yeah, no, you were saying um, most people don't even know they're pregnant until exactly. So 5%. like. But yeah, yeah, 15 weeks is no longer the standard. They could have just stopped at 15 weeks. Now you can just ban it outright. Like, they right. can do whatever they want now. And to your point, remember, what we're talking about is the conservatives realize this is an unpopular opinion. The majority of Americans support abortion in some forms, especially in the first trimester. People support abortion. They do not support a total ban on abortion. So the conservatives realized that this is not a popular position. They're not going to win elections on this position. So they turn to the courts. So because if you get the right judge, they have a lifetime appointment. Right. And so they realized strategically the courts were important. The Democrats didn't have to do that. The Democrats could, as you said, pass nationwide legislation in the American House and the American Senate to say that Mississippi, you do not have a right to shut down the abortion clinics. We at the Congress are gonna legislate on this issue to say that if you shut down the abortion clinics, we're gonna like take your federal funding away for like highways and stuff. Right. Obama could have done that when he had 60 votes in the Senate and a House supermajority in 2008 and nine, but he chose not to. So when people say the Democrats aren't serious about abortion, we're going to talk more about that later, but this is what they're talking about. Like the court interprets law, but Congress passes the laws, right? So Congress doesn't have to stop at Roe. Roe was not like a magical protection of abortion nationwide. It was they they chipped away at abortion in the South for years and years and years when we had Roe. So you would have needed the, the United States Congress to put money up to support abortion clinics in the South, in states where they're pushing back against reproductive autonomy to say, no, we're making a positive affirmative choice to support women's autonomy nationwide. And the Democrats never did that because they said, we can just win in the courts. And I think that's the decision that people are kind of frustrated with now because you basically fought on the conservatives' terrain. Like the Constitution is an extremely conservative document. And as angry as the justices are, like the people who wrote the document were extremely conservative people. They didn't like England, but they were also like slave owners and extremely capitalist, right? So yeah. depending on the constitution to like do progressive things, it doesn't really make sense. But again, we're so disillusioned that because the courts are not elected and because of Brown v. Board, this illusion came out and because of Roe v. Wade that the courts are somehow progressive and woke. And that's where the real social progress comes is these perfect, intelligent justices who wear the robes and do the smart stuff. And now people are realizing maybe putting all the hope in a democratically unaccountable branch of government to protect your rights maybe wasn't the best idea. Especially because the conservative the constitution is just super conservative. Like it's not built with people like us in mind, because like our ancestors were enslaved. So the idea that we should depend on them for our liberation, people have been saying this is a dummy mission for like 70 years. And I think just now, regular mainstream Democrat liberals are like waking up to that. Mm -hmm. I think one of the, the concerns too, naturally, and of course, is that this is not stopping here, right? So it's not stopping at five weeks. Um, there's some places where it's uh, illegal to get the abortion pill. Mm -hmm. uh, places where they're moving to make it illegal to mail the uh, the abortion pill. And then like, okay, let's talk about what is the impact? How does this impact folks? Um, 
because you can't, because it's not uh, a ban in that you cannot get one, period. You just can't get one in these 22 and probably growing number of states. Yeah. So you can travel to another place. So I think a lot of times the the uh, folks who are uh, pro-life um, are leaning on, it's not a ban. You're making a big deal out of it. You could just travel somewhere else. But everybody doesn't have the means to be able to travel somewhere else. If I wanted to get an abortion, I'd be fine. I could I could go a place and, and get an abortion. But that's not everybody's case. So it impacts folks in, in those particular. Uh, you have to have the luxury of travel and then also the luxury of privacy. Uh, because how many people do you need to get involved if you can't do it yourself to, to be able to go and um, have, you know, and have that? Um, I feel like one of the things it also does is because it is connected to a, a, a means of being able to travel and have certain rights to privacy, it, it reinforces, I feel like, this health caste system uh, that we have when it's like, you know, these certain people can uh, are, are able to uh, get it. And, and when I say this, I want to be very specific that I'm not just saying like white people. I'm just saying people that have means because there's plenty of black people that mm -hmm. have means. I don't want to make it synonymous like it's all black and brown people that don't have access and all the white women are, you know, are, are fine and do have access. If I wanted to have an abortion, I would be fine. Um, I think another thing that that is concerning and not even just concerning, just like is nonsensical is that when you look at other countries, when they do things like make a abortion illegal or ban it, the abortions actually don't go down. They just go underground. So it doesn't actually decrease the number of abortions. Um, it just makes them go underground, which of course, because they're going on the underground, a lot of times they, yeah. you know, increase death rates, increase uh, maternal mortality and, and or dismemberment or botched uh, situation. So like those are uh, for me, a lot of, a lot of the things that are largely concerning. Mm -hmm. and I think but, the, so, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. On the lines, obviously it will be revealed when we actually play the segment we did a few months ago when Texas passed that extremely restrictive abortion bill. Um, abortions didn't go down nearly as much as people saw it because people transitioned from going to the clinic to doing a, a, a medication-assisted abortion. But we should just explain what that is, because when I talk to people about abortion medication, they think I'm talking about Plan B or the, the birth control pill. This mm -hmm. is not Plan B. This is not the birth control pill. Plan B and birth control prevent conception. But they are drugs now. There are two different drugs that they use as a, a two-step cocktail to actually, largely within you know the first uh, 15 weeks, be able to actually terminate pregnancies with medication and without having to go to an abortion clinic. So when we talk about bans, what they're banning is the abortion clinic. They're banning the procedure. Many states are also banning the medicine, but it's way harder to ban medicine than it is to ban clinics, right? So I think that's the concern is that in these states, women, it's very likely that women are still going to try to have abortions just using medication either gotten within state or out of state. And though this medication is generally quite safe, there is concern that some that some issues with bleeding, there are some issues with medical issues with med, uh, medication-assisted abortions. And if they go to the hospital, then they could get charged with a crime for doing the abortion with a medication from out of state. So in some ways, the hope is that medication can be uh, a way around some of these abortion bans. But um, as you had talked about, 
there are many states that have been trying to ban access to this medication. So in 32 states, clinicians who administer medication abortions are required to be physicians. Again, so you basically have to have that physician requirement. Texas prohibits the use of medication abortions starting at seven weeks of pregnancy, you know, which again is a totally arbitrary, politically determined uh, threshold. Mm-hmm. 19 states, the clinician providing a medication abortion must be physically present with the medication if administered, thus preventing like telemedicine and people doing this incredibly personal, difficult thing like within their homes where they may feel more comfortable. Um, in three states, nailing abortion pills to patients is currently banned. And those three states are Arizona, Arkansas, and Texas. Uh, so mailing bans in another three states, Montana, Oklahoma, and South Dakota, have been blocked by the courts. Because, again, this is like legal medication. One of the medications for abortion, I don't remember the name, they're incredibly similar and easy to confuse. One of them is actually commonly prescribed for stomach ulcers. So it's not easy to ban this medication because it actually has a completely legitimate purpose beyond abortion, which is stomach ulcers. So are you just going to ban medicine people need because some people might misuse it? So there's actually a degree of legal protection for some of these medications that may make it harder for states to outright ban these medications. Um, So, yeah, so as of uh, February 2022, 16 state legislatures have introduced bans or restrictions on medication abortions, including legislation that would ban the use of medication abortions in seven states, Alabama, Arizona, Illinois, Iowa, South Dakota, Washington, and Wyoming. So this is just proposed. This is not states where it's passed. And other states have proposed, again, it's not passed, but proposed a prohibition of the mailing of abortion pills in five states. Georgia, Kentucky, Maryland, Massachusetts, and Nebraska, right? So again, this is really, I think, the next battleground for uh, many, many of these abortions. Now, again, as you said, not everyone's going to be able to get a first trimester medication-assisted abortion. So that is going to be women who uh, can't use the medication within the first trimester who have to go out of state or have to have the child. You know, so this is definitely not a cure-all for everything, but it does raise the possibility of even if they shut down the abortion clinics, which it seems like they're going to do, which they've been effectively doing for decades now, the medication abortion seems to be the next forefront in terms of, as the document, as the graphic showed, it's over 50% of all abortions in America are done with medication now. So the majority of women actually are not going to uh, into the clinic for the procedure anymore. But yeah, the idea of not having proper medical guidance and support if something goes wrong i think if people are legitimately concerned about that yeah i mean i think they should be i feel like they should also be considered about out of all of the i hate using this term developed countries in the world u.s the u.s has the highest rate of women that die from childbirth like like if we're thinking about life and we're thinking about protecting um life in that way and then when you look at black women black women are too and a half times more likely to die in childbirth. So if like, as we're talking about this whole thing around uh, protecting life, like whose life and like, how does that, how does that play out? I know it's been interesting to see some of the conservative party, particularly the women and their response to uh, this victory for them. Uh, One, even though she, took it back and I really wanted I, I know we don't have enough time on this show to really unpack 
um, House member Miller when she made the comment, um, this is a victory for white life. Uh, but apparently she said she she actually meant to say it's a victory for pro-life. Uh, and then there was another um, House representative who made some sort of comment around she trusts that women can she she trusts that women can control male ejaculation and keep themselves <laughs> from getting pregnant. Yeah. I mean, it's like the most bizarre bizarre angles that we're coming at with this thing. Uh, yeah, and again, it raises the possibility of people were very frustrated with the Democrats' response, which was Nancy Pelosi literally reading a poem and telling oh people they'll vote in, in the midterms, you know. So, but there is concerns that, again, the Democrats right now, right this second, could go to the House and the Senate and say, look, we want a nationwide um, assurance that at least in the case of rape, incest, or the life of the mother, abortion should be possible nationwide. And even if it doesn't pass the Senate, then you would get these Republicans on record actually having to say, it's like, yes, I believe that even in the instance of rape, incest, and life of the mother, you should be forced to have the child, then you could organize around that. But the Democrats have not taken that vote yet in the Senate, in part because they want to use those popular uh, talking points to be able to gain more political leverage rather than to just have the vote and either win it or lose it. There's, it it's not even assured that they would lose that vote because there's so many Republicans for whom this is so, so extreme that they, they would lose suburban support if they actually said in the instance of rape, incest, and life of the mother, yeah, you got to have the child. So they might even win some of these votes and actually protect people in real life right now but they won't have the vote because they want to use these as bargaining chips for more political leverage down the future. So the Democrats are seeing all these things through the lens of long-term political gain. And I think that people are frustrated because they feel like they care more about the politics of it than actually protecting women's lives as much as they say otherwise. You know, so of course, one example that floated around was Nancy Pelosi, the leader of the House of Representatives, at least for now, she probably won't be uh, come November when Democrats lose the House. Actually, on the day, on the week Roe was overturned, she was in Texas or, or doing work for the Texas lawmaker, Henry Cuellar, who's the only anti-Roe pro-life Democrat in the House of Representatives. So this is literally like the number one issue that they're crying and you know wailing about when Roe gets overturned. But the week Roe was overturned, they were doing robocalls and fundraising for a pro-corporate, anti-choice, anti-Roe Democrat to protect them from a progressive challenge in Texas from a less corporate, pro-Bernie, pro-life, pro-choice, pro pro-Roe candidate in Jessica Cisneros. And Henry Cuellar actually won that election by only 250-ish votes. So this really was them putting their finger on the scale that says, when it comes to corporations, when it comes to donors, we're willing to support sowing women's autonomy under the bus. And then the very next day, literally the next day, she's reading the poem about uh, how emotionally distraught she is about her. Yeah. So the reality of the Democrats, again, it's not just a vote harder type thing. It's a question of who has the political power. Because Cuellar, again, is like tied to the oil and gas industry. He has like big overseas donations from you know these foreign countries. So the Democrats are a corporate party that just happened to be 
the vehicle that people feel they have to tie their hopes to for social justice, reproductive justice, all these other things. And the question is, how do you get more leverage over them or support candidates in primaries that can actually force them to live up to their words? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where, where do you see, uh, I mean, I have two questions just in, just in general conversation. One, why are they so strong on this? Like, why is this the thing that they will lay it all on the line for? Uh, is one question. And then two, and I guess this will help to to wrap us up whenever you get to this one. Uh, where do we find, where can we find, cultivate, or establish some sense of Black power in this dynamic? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that that was a pervasive sense, starting with really, I believe, Brown versus Board of Education. That really led to conservatives organizing amongst themselves because that's what they built, the, the Catholic schools, the private schools, the segregation academies, the conservative schools, because they didn't want to immigrate with Black folks. This idea that the government could attack basically you know, the sanctity of their religious institutions because their religious institutions were segregated. You know? Um, so they were willing to give up, you know, like public money and start this larger organizing because basically there's a feeling that the government turned against them with starting with Brown v. Board. And that's this general feeling that, you know, the liberals, the permissive people, the secular people, the black people have taken over. Mm-hmm. And Brown v. Board was a, I'm sorry, Roe v. Wade was a symbol of moral decay in America. Mm. You know, because again, it's like more black and brown women proportionally get abortions than white women. So if you wanted to protect white life, mm-hmm. then or at least protect it from like the black and brown people taking over America, it's like you should you should want more abortions for black and brown people, which some racists do. Like mm-hmm. you know, so the history of eugenics, unfortunately, mm-hmm. and with folks like Margaret Sanger is actually really mm-hmm. bad when it comes to abortion. But I think Roe v. Wade is a symbol for them of the loss of control of the political order in defeating Roe v. Wade is them reasserting, reasserting control over the political order. Like that's why I think that white life comment makes sense because it is the power of like white evangelicals and also some black evangelicals and Latino evangelicals and conservatives that like anti-abortion that really pushed this image to the forefront. Now, the other thing people talk about is that, look, all the judges who are anti-Roe and pro-life also extremely pro-corporation. They are pro-deregulation. They are pro-corporate autonomy. They are pro-corporations pumping all the pollution into your air and into your water. But no one's going to vote for them if they come out and say, hey, vote for me. I'll appoint pro-corporate judges. What they can say is vote for me. I'll appoint pro-life judges. Mm. That was an intentional decision to forefront the issue of abortion to get the evangelical vote on board for the Republicans because the evangelicals were on the brink of becoming almost apolitical. They were on some like Sodom and Gomorrah stuff, like America's decadent, politics is decadent, we're out, we're not voting. But that was a very intentional strategic decision to bring them back into politics because the Republican corporations, because Republican money is oil money, gas money, shipping money, manufacturing money, it's dirty money polluting industries, they need support from the courts to like not be regulated. What happened the day, the day after Roe got overturned? They overturned the EPA's authority to regulate greenhouse gases. Those two are not disconnected. Those two are fundamentally connected because the powerful business interests are using 
the moral issues of pro-life to support their pro-corporate judicial agenda to destroy the New Deal, destroy the regulatory state, right? So with that, I think that we have to, first of all, have frank conversations about reproductive autonomy in our community, because I think it's a touchy subject that people don't like to touch on, even though most Black people, like most people in America, are pro-abortion in some ways. We also have anxieties about abortion being used to you know, depopulate the Black community and be a tool right. of eugenics. Right. And I think that the mainstream white pro-choice movement hasn't done a good job addressing that concern. They just call you, I mean, people fear being called a bigot for raising that concern. So mm-hmm. I think that, again, it's like we talk about that in the episode we did that's going to air right after this about addressing that concern mm-hmm. and really thinking through it and being honest about it. But again, it's like Black people are not just interested in abortion. They want reproductive justice. Right. The ability to raise a family and have support for a family and not just the right to terminate pregnancies if they need to. So the idea of economic redistribution of money and power as a family rights issue, as a black community reproduction issue, that has not been the core of the reproductive justice movement because that would piss off the donors to the reproductive justice movement who oftentimes are like, you know, tech money, finance, real estate money. They don't want anything that rocks their boat. They just want to make sure if they need to, their daughters and their nieces can get abortions. So I think we have to push back against the really the failure, the utter complete failure of the nonprofits who have been working on reproductive justice. I know there are good people who dedicated their life to doing it, but you just got to look at yourself in the mirror and say, look what happened. You know, right. You, you know, so it's just that honest. It's not that they're unique. There are nonprofits who are hustling off of people suffering all over the country and the planet. Mm-hmm. But to the extent that's happening, Black folks and everyone has to be honest about the strategies that have worked, just having marches and reading poems and just cathartic emotional BS. That's not moving no policy. Like mm-hmm. Conservatives don't care. Like they don't, they don't care. So you need to actually build local power and redistribute local power in ways that build coalitions that can get stuff done. You know, so I think that we have to look locally and have to look at, again, like what are issues of, you know, in Baltimore, we have issues of unemployment with young people and we have issues with, you know, uh, you know, we're going to talk about this eventually, the child protective services system. It's terrible. Mm-hmm. It's just horrible in this country. So what can you do to redistribute resources to families before they get their children taken away as opposed to after the fact? That would be reproductive justice and that'd mm-hmm. be extremely popular. And a lot of people who are, you know, being sucked into being more conservative and anti-Roe, they're having things like child protective services being called on them for like Mm -hmm. being poor, basically, and not being able to fully take care of their kids the way they want to. But like no one is speaking to them. No one is speaking for them. You know, the liberals have been sucked into being pro big government all the time, no matter what. And sometimes big government's bad. Like, like childhood services is bad. <laughs> so I, I don't want to fund them more. Like I want them to change. I want them to redistribute those funds to give them directly to families so they can like buy food and pampers and not need to have their children given to strangers, you know? But so these are all fundamental political debates that we need to challenge the liberal orthodoxy on because that's just this cadre of lawyers and nonprofit professionals that Unfortunately, this stuff is some ways good for them and good for their jobs. Like Planned Parenthood had a massive fundraising boom off of this. And, and they have industries where they protect each other and they, they freeze out ideas that are challenges to the way they do stuff. And I just think the way they do stuff has kind of failed. I think it's objectively true at this point and we have to demand better. 
Yeah. I think to your point too, um, I feel like there's not enough unpacking of uh, for folks and, I, and maybe they don't care to do this. Uh, why do women choose to have abortions, right? Like if you look mm -hmm. at women who do have abortions, uh, most, the highest percent of women who have abortions already have children. Our mothers, exactly. Right, exactly. So why do they? Why Why would they? Oh, because they had an un, unexpected or unwanted pregnancy. Okay, why didn't they want this pregnancy? Like it's, us, it's usually some fundamental uh, life survival things that come up of why people don't want this. So if you want more babies, let's say if the goal is more babies, or you want people to choose to have children more, why aren't they focused? Why aren't we focused collectively on creating conditions wherein mothers could have children safely, not just safely, but more economically sound, more like they have, um, you know, better opportunities where child protective services isn't trash, where, you know, the social work industry isn't trash. Um, why isn't the focus on that? Like, we're not looking at why are women, why are people mm -hmm. choosing this as an option? And I also want to say that there are also some men who are choosing this as an option, right? Because there's, mm -hmm. you know, there's another person involved and they're both making, sometimes they're both making this decision. Sometimes it's just one of them making this decision. But why are they choosing it? And I don't feel like we have that conversation enough to say they're choosing it because of this. If we want them to choose differently, let's, let's make this a, a more viable option. Let's make child giving, bringing a child into this world a more viable option. Yeah. I mean, I think the average American says they want something like 2.8 children and the average American family is having like 2.1. And the number one reason is they said they can't afford it. You right. know, so we had the child tax credit, but that only kicks in once a year or that, that kicks in, you know, for certain people at certain times. And they, they, they kicked in the child tax credit, but they made it so that you had to renew it after one year. And mm -hmm. after one year, they couldn't get the votes and it went away. Mm -hmm. And what they found was that the people who received the child tax credit and then they stopped receiving it, they didn't thank the Democrats for trying. They blamed them for not mm -hmm. fighting harder to keep it. So those mm -hmm. people actually shifted further to the Republicans after the child tax credit got taken away. So mm -hmm. that's the thing. It's like if you aren't fundamentally committed to actually creating the conditions where families can thrive, then all you have is the symbolism. All you have is fighting in the courts, which is an extremely elite technocratic space. You don't have you can't push policy to get the people behind you. Because that would, frankly, anger your donors who don't want massive multi-billion dollar re reallocations of wealth in this country, which will have to happen to support conditions where families can survive. Yeah. Uh, and I would love more of that. Like, I would love more of that than taking a knee. I would love more than that than reciting a poem. Mm -hmm. I would love more than that than you singing on the steps. Like, I would love more, more of that than all of this uh, symbolism. Um, because I, I, I don't feel like it was just one side. I feel like both sides made this happen. And it could not have happened without, I don't want to say the cooperation, but the, um, I don't know, the passiveness, the 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 whatever of, of the other side. So... Yeah, yeah. So uh, we appreciate you all uh, listening to this uh, update of In Search of Black Power. So now we're going to actually play for you all the episode we recorded before about some of the more in-depth issues around uh, reproductive justice and hopefully build upon the conversation we have here. So thank you and look forward to next time we continue to go In Search of Black Power. I'll see you soon.
Hello and welcome to In Search of Black Power. I'm Lawrence Grand Prix, Director of Research for Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. I'm Rashim, a scholar and independent researcher. And the topic for today is, given recent abortion restrictions, how should we understand black women's reproductive health, including, but also beyond, the issue of abortion. And Rashim, I think you've done some great work putting together some analysis and history for us. How about you um, break us in? Sure. Uh, thanks for that, Lena. So, uh, as you know, uh, in September 2021, uh, the Supreme Court heard arguments on this uh, total abortion bill or the Senate Bill 8. Um, now, the thing about this bill, one of the reasons why they're calling it a total abortion bill is because it uh, starts to restrict abortions beginning at six weeks. Mm-hmm. Now, if you know anything about a woman's menstrual cycle, one of the first telltale signs that you're pregnant is you miss your cycle. Mm-hmm. And that's right four weeks later. So a lot of times at six weeks, people don't even know that they're even like pregnant yet, mm-hmm. right? So. Uh, With that, most of the abortions, about 85 to 90 percent of abortions happen after that six weeks. So Mm -hmm. the the bill has been pretty effective uh, thus far in Texas at really restricting that. And um, one of the reasons that it's uh, so important to pay attention to is not only because of the specific uh, restrictions that it gives, and it also has no exceptions for incest or rape, Mm -hmm. but the way in which this bill is enforced is particularly unique, right? Because it's not federally enforced, it's not state enforced. It sort of uh, calls on this vigilante justice mechanism to enforce it. And what I mean by that is it gives citizens the the power and the right to um, call out or identify folks who they assume or think may be in pursuit of an abortion. Mm-hmm. So that means anybody around you. That's not just healthcare providers. That is uh, the Uber driver who drove, drove you to the place where you're going to get the abortion. Mm-hmm. That is if you got uh, funds from your husband to uh, to carry out the abortion because you already have too many children and you don't want any more. Mm-hmm. That is if you told your teacher or your coach or someone at school, anyone within that uh, in that person's sphere can be uh, can be taken to court and sued. And not only are, can they be sued, the person who turns them in can get $10,000 reward. They mm-hmm. basically have these pregnant women bounty hunters that mm-hmm. they're uh, unleashing on folks. Another thing that's uh, kind of um, concerning about this is there's absolutely no penalty for if there is a false claim. Mm-hmm. So you you get a person, uh, and it, I feel like it really reverts us back to a time where abortions were completely, completely illegal and people were in their homes or under sheds or somewhere hiding, having all of these illegal abortions because they didn't have access to proper medical care to be able to do that. And the thing that I think is important for people to understand is some people call it a chilling effect, mm-hmm. where the idea is that, like, it's still theoretically you can do an abortion. You just need to be willing to pay that bounty and lawyer up because you're going to get sued by these bounty hunters. So what happens is that people don't want to deal with mm-hmm. the onslaught of litigation so they just stop providing abortions so this is how texas is trying to like use like very strategic conservative legal lawfare like there's warfare and then there's lawfare and the conservatives have been using lawfare against the concept of abortion for really decades now and this Mm -hmm. is a particular example in texas where it appears they may have been successful 
Yeah. I think one of the things, too, to keep in mind, of course, there's these, like, political implications. There are these social implications. But there's all these, also these social and individual uh, impacts that this bill have in a way that it alienates that person who's pregnant, who um, has an unwanted uh, pregnancy, from seeking help. Right? Because it doesn't directly penalize the person who's carrying a child, but anybody around them in their sphere who attempts in any way to provide support mm -hmm. um, are then penalized in that way. And it really dis the, um, discourages uh, people from making any sorts of attempts on supporting. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I feel like is particularly like radical about this approach. In addition to the ways in which it is enforced, like this uh, vigilante justice, your neighbor could tell, and then you could be rounded up, and the people in your family could be rounded up of whoever aided and abetted, right? So it's criminalizing you, uh, essentially. Is that if we took that same thing and we applied it, let's say, to illegal firearms, mm -hmm. and we said anyone suspected of having an Ill illegal firearm, your uh, um, anyone who sold it to you, anyone who practiced using it in a gun range, anyone who saw you with it or you let you hold it or kept it in, in your house or sold you bullets for it could be rounded up and then fine. It would be an outrage. On, uh, the conservatives would like go mad and mm -hmm. they would be up in arms quite literally and figuratively. Mm -hmm. Right? So there are some um, limitations to alternatives. One of the things that people frequently say is, okay, this is just in Texas. So people could go to another state, and when they're in that other state, they could get an abortion there. But one of the things that researchers know is that 75% of women who get abortions are, uh, are low income and 50% of those are below the poverty line. Mm -hmm. So if you look at access to resources, ability to travel, also if a, a mother already has multiple children, researchers show us that uh, six out of 10 of folks who pursue abortion already have children. So these aren't people who hate babies, mm -hmm. right? They have whatever conditions or circumstances in their life, whatever their reasons are their own and nobody else's business, mm -hmm. but their own, they've decided to uh, still still use that, to still go about in, the, in that way. So you have uh, additional restrictions, limit, uh, restrictions of resources if you don't have the resources, access to transportation, the fear of anybody around you driving you across state lines that knows that you're going to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, those particular repercussions, um, as well as childcare if you do have other children. It's just like so many things that um, that it disproportionately ends up impacting mm -hmm. low income and black and brown families. Yeah, and this goes back to the classic concept that abortion, even in some of the most restrictive states, have never really been illegal for rich people. Right. So even if you have, you know, death and mythology of the back alley abortionists, which mm -hmm. is at times demonized in terms of wanting to make abortion legal, but in some people's minds was a hero, you know, mm -hmm. working against very difficult circumstances to give people the health care and the choices they needed, that's going to be options like that for rich people, mm -hmm. even in states mm -hmm. like Texas. I guarantee you that. Oh, yeah. But that gets me to something that I think I wanted to bring up in the conversation, which is some of the history around reproductive rights, the black community, and how this concept has been perceived in different ways in different times. Because one thing that I think about a lot is this assumed schism between the reproductive rights movement and the black power movement specifically, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. a lot of people who are narrated by women's rights advocates as women's rights abortion advocates in the 60s and 70s were also 
pushing for community control of resources. They weren't just pushing for abortion. They were pushing for a more full version of reproductive rights that included freedom from want, freedom from housing insecurity, freedom to actually raise children with the resources they needed to build up these children the way they saw fit. And in the African-centered, pan-African community, there is sometimes this notion that, um, I think about the Nas song, where he's like, hood rats don't abortion your womb, we need more warriors soon. Mm -hmm. You know, this notion from the 70s that black men specifically were adopting the patriarchal vision of black power that Mm -hmm. said abortion was inherently bad because they were stealing warriors from the black community. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that and some of the other history you wanted to get into? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I I really want to emphasize and and, um, make very plain, um, people or advocates of this bill, of of this particular bill will say it is about the children, we want to save babies, but it's a long history of U.S. government trying to have control uh, over reproduction rights, especially, especially, especially the reproductive rights of uh, black women. And that's been since the beginning of time since we uh, were brought here to this country. So, so if I go all the way back, right, and if I go even, let's say, to... Um, enslaved black women, right? That was a, uh, the the children, the babies that black women produce were directly tied to U.S. economy, right? And in that way, during that time, black women having lots of babies were good because it supported U.S. economy, so that's what we want, right? Then there's a time where they there is less control of tightening, control of you don't have this controlled labor force anymore, mm-hmm. um, and then taxes go up, or it has this impact, or this social, there's this element of a desire for social control. Mm-hmm. So then you have this enforced, steriliz- enforced sterilization that happens in the 1970s, where during, there's a short period of time um, where there was about 7,000 women that had forced sterilization, 7,000, mm-hmm. and I believe it was somewhat uh, upwards of 5,000 of them were black women. Mm-hmm. Like, So you see how all these different controls over reproductive rights disproportionately impact and um, affect black women. Yeah, uh, I think it's important to point out that historically controlling or interest in black women's reproduction is a issue across the entirety of the American political spectrum. Right. I think there's this notion nowadays that the Democrats support reproductive rights, Republicans uh, don't. And I think it's more complex than that historically mm-hmm. and contemporaneously. So during the South, it was the Democrats, i.e. the Dixiecrats, who mm-hmm. wanted m- more reproduction because those slaves counted for their House of Representatives right. votes. So that's the three-fifths compromise, right? Um, so with that, you had the Republicans, the radical Republicans, the Lincoln Republicans being abolitionists, but they didn't want black people reproducing mm-hmm. because they saw them as uh, a threat to white labor mm-hmm. because slave labor and black labor could work cheaply or free and challenge white labor. They also didn't want black folks reproducing because they thought they were going to settle the West. They thought either slavery was going to settle the West and prevent white folks from stealing that land, mm-hmm. or they thought black folks being in the West with slavery would help them settle that land eventually, and they didn't mm-hmm. want to work near black folks. And of course, there's the Republican uh, repatriation movement to send black folks back to Africa. Mm-hmm. So all right. of this notion, is, and again, the parties have flipped. <laughs> you know, So now the radical Republicans and now the Democrats, but either way, that's just this long history of like, you never really loved us. There's this interest convergence that sometimes says produce more and we care. And sometimes says we don't want you to reproduce more. And that goes across the political spectrum historically and contemporaneously. 
Right. It's about control and maintaining a, a social order, right? So you have uh, you have the Moynihan Report that gives this this skewed image of black families. Then you have uh, Reagan's welfare queen, the, this mythological creature, I would say, mm-hmm. uh, this invention of um, demonizing mm-hmm. uh, black women, right? So th- there there are, there's varied interests at different points in U.S. history of black women having babies. Uh, and uh, not only just black women having babies, but black women being mothers, right? So one of the points that you brought up earlier is in, fo- in, in wanting not only the right to have a choice, but also right to access to healthcare, access to be able to uh, a livable wage, uh, childcare. So we have this way in which where we start to see, particularly now with uh, more conservative movements where there is this strong desire, this strong interest in black babies so long as they're in the womb, mm-hmm. right? And the second they come out of the womb, there is no support for social programs, there's no support for child uh, welfare programs, and that sort of thing. So it just kind of like slaps in the face of, I am for the rights of babies, I am for child life, when it seems like while they want to start to count the clock of this child's life at six weeks within the womb, mm-hmm. it seems as soon as that, that child leaves that mother's body, there is no longer interest in that in that child's life whatsoever. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, another thing like to, to bring up um, really strongly in the connection of the, the business of birth, mm-hmm. I will say, is that in the, and I'm going to, uh, look here to my notes. Uh, in the U.S., uh, in the early 1900s, half of the births were attended by midwives, right? Ni- early 1900s. Then there's this paper by a medical physician in the 19, uh, I'm sorry, in 1912, uh, J. Whitridge Williams, right? And in this, he um, establishes and begin to call for a gradual abolition of midwives in large cities. Mm-hmm. And then by 1937, the number of births attended by midwives dropped to 13%. However, in black women, in, I'm sorry, in black uh, communities, mm-hmm. midwives uh, still uh, attended about 50% of those births. Yeah, it's a cultural technology that stems all the way back to Africa. Mm-hmm. And what has happened traditionally is African cultural technologies are usually denigrated within the Eurocentric uh, medical systems. They are then oftentimes uh, gentrified and then taken over by white folks. Mm-hmm. So the example that I thought of when I saw this was something called virulation. Virulation is an indigenous African inoculation technique for smallpox. So black folks were inoculating each other for smallpox hundreds of years before white people even knew what germ theory was, right? So it wasn't like a needle and a shot. It was you take a little bit of a pustule and Mm -hmm. you would prick Mm -hmm. a healthy person with it so that they could develop a mild case of smallpox so they wouldn't die from it. So what happened was eventually an African slave told this to a white doctor, and he was like, get out of here, that's ridiculous. <laughs> but then he actually studied it, proved it to other white folks, mm-hmm. and the white folks called the white man a genius. <laughs> right? And so the thing that I think about, it's the American way. Um, the thing I think about with that is, what is the social technology, the social theory of community that led black folks to think of that? Mm-hmm. Because black folks knew when you got sick, you got other people sick. Mm-hmm. What did most, what did many communities do, including black communities, African communities? Quarantine, isolation. Mm-hmm. But there became a moment where it's like, no, we need to actually have a positive view of protecting our community. Mm-hmm. 
and not isolating this person, but seeing that if there are a way that we can have this person get care and use their sickness to strengthen the entire community. Mm-hmm. So that mm-hmm. way of seeing a sick person as an asset rather than a liability, that's what I think is so important about the virulation example. Mm-hmm. And that's what you lose when that cultural technology is gentrified and put into the Eurocentric machine, because now it just becomes another thing to make profit off of. Right. Man, having that conversation now with uh, recent COVID vaccines and that whole thing, that that would be interesting. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's for another, <laughs> another show. Um, yeah, I mean, to all of those points, at the end of the day, I think like the, the real main point of understanding, one, I want people to understand this, uh, this bill that some people are calling the heartbeat bill. And they're calling it a heartbeat bill because that six week march marker is when you first start to get any sort of cardiac activity. Um, I want people to understand how unique this, this particular bill is in that one, um, it eliminates 85 to 90% of, of abortions and it's been effective at doing that in Texas and other states are looking at it. I know Mississippi recently started looking at it and I'm sure it's like uh, spread even beyond the last time that I had a chance to look at it, but also the ways in which it alienates uh, mothers who are carrying a child that they no longer want to have. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's very important to look at and how this vigilante justice only seems to be something that is initiated, wanted, or desire in this context, but we're not using it in gun control. We're not using it in all of these other things. We're not calling on community to call out other people and to round them up, like like it's some sort of Salem witch trial or anything like that. Um, it's funny, I was talking to a friend about it and she calls it like the Karen law, because Karen will, you know, mm-hmm be quick to get on the phone and and there's no repercussion for it. So I think that's one of the main things I want people to make sure that people walk away with. Um, Also, I, while there are people who are advocating for it and whether you are advocating, just knowing the full information that this is not about the love and care Mm -hmm. of babies especially when that love and care and protection stops after that baby is born. Mm -hmm. I just want people to be able to see that it is about social controls. And if you care about uh, babies or life or black life, Mm -hmm. care about them beyond uh, the womb. Mm -hmm. And it gets back to a topic we brought up earlier where, you know, Francis Cress Welsing, there is an argument that it does feel like there's this obsession with black and brown fertility. Mm. Oftentimes overt mm-hmm. in many of the conservative white nationalist communities that's like, oh, wow, Francis Cress Wilson was right all this time. <laughs> I've actually heard like mainstream academics like say that, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, but that same time, just because white people are anxious over black and brown fertility rates doesn't mean that having all the babies all the time is the most revolutionary thing. Right. Right. So the rhetoric of the 70s was literally in the context of a guerrilla war. Mm-hmm. And black men were being sent to Vietnam to die to fight guerrilla warriors. So that guerrilla war mindset, unless you're literally planning to fight a guerrilla war in the United States, which mm-hmm. we would probably lose, you need to think about this concept more strategically and figure out how do we as a community leverage resources so that we can have children when we're ready. We can have the institutions that we want to socialize them Mm -hmm. and they can fight in ways that are more uh, amenable to the contemporary political reality than just literally having a fighting force as I think many black nationalists I think mistakenly thought we were in like a literal like 
Guinea-Bissau, Kenya-style, like mm-hmm. literally going to the mountains to fight a guerrilla war mindset. So maybe physical numbers make sense. But as we know, just having a black kid doesn't mean they're going to be a black warrior. Right. right? You need institutions to socialize them and train them to actually serve the community. And I think that's what the more comprehensive visions of black mm-hmm. reproductive justice that many, again, black women were talking about in the 60s and 70s mm-hmm. were about. But because I think many academic sources assume the validity of the women's rights movement and that was inherently antagonistic to the black power, black nationalist right. movement, they read back into history mm-hmm. and say those black women uh, were just talking about reproductive rights and abortion, which is yeah. not really the case. Or they're tied very strongly to eugenics, mm-hmm. right? Which it has some history there. That's not, you know what I mean? That's not completely uh, off or wrong. I think that the, at the end of the day, it's still about, at the base of it, black autonomy. Uh, black o- autonomy over our own bodies, black autonomy over when we are decide to be parents or not be parents, black autonomy in terms of the institutions of where we want to go to seek medical mm-hmm. help, and also uh, if you care about our babies so much, when we come and talk about you know building institutions around childcare or mm-hmm. getting aid, then care about our babies. Yeah, and, but again, just to put that in the context, I think that goes to Republicans and Democrats. Absolutely, because with Moynihan. The big thing for him was we need to have patriarchy in the black family because Mm -hmm. that's the only thing that's ever worked because we're not going to give them social services. Mm -hmm. We'll give them patriarchy. Like they were talking about drafting black men and putting them in the military as a way to inculcate a patriarchal mentality within them through military service. When you had those black folks coming up to the north with the northern migration, remember New Deal. Agricultural workers were excluded. Mm-hmm. Home health care workers were excluded. Okay. Domestic workers were excluded. So in the South, the black folk weren't necessarily integrated into the social service government welfare system. Mm-hmm. When they moved north, that was a setup, partially philanthropic, but also government-sponsored social service health care system that they were like, oh, crap, these black folks expect social services. We don't want to give that to them. Right. We want to give these folks patriarchy. Right. right. So that's when Moynihan, the concern about neoliberalism, government spending pops up, is that northern migration, black folks expecting government expenditures. And how I feel folks are squaring the circle with the Democratic Party now is that we'll give you services, black folks, black women, mm-hmm. but we'll profit off of them. Right. So if you bring up the tariff sheet, this is an article from, I believe, the year 2000. And it says literally that black maternal health care has become another vector for profit making within the corporate sector. So I'll just read a little bit of of this article. I Mm -hmm. thought it was really interesting. Earlier in 2020, pharmaceutical and healthcare behemoth Johnson and Johnson was a market capitalization of one hundred and sixty billion dollars partnered with a white female-led Founders Factory New York studio to search for a black CEO to lead a new mm-hmm. J&J-backed venture to address black maternal mortality. Mm-hmm. The post promoting the search, which was recently removed, <laughs> touted <laughs> black maternal health market as a $59 billion industry. Mm-hmm. So black maternal health is a industry. The description called for the opening a unique opportunity to build a business with the Founders Factory and support Johnson & Johnson. So it concludes, it's a black woman writing this, to many of the black female founders in the maternal health space, this reeked of the same privilege white women have wielded for centuries, 
having decision-making power over our maternal authority, our money-making ability, or our communities with no track record of ever working in or with our communities. Mm -hmm. This is the, it's the type of corporate takeover of black people and their problems and financial exploitation that are being protested right now in this moment of racial reckoning around police brutality and systemic oppression. After decades of black people working on the issue in earnest and more recently, a new crop of black female founders rooted in the community, developing technologies and design solutions showing there is a viable and profitability in our ideas, even without the same access to capital, black maternal mortality is now apparently being gentrified. Mm -hmm. So I think that that is a perfect synopsis of why we need a comprehensive vision of reproductive justice yes. beyond abortion. Right. Because what the Democrats want is, we'll give you access to health care, mm -hmm. but that gives you access to a for-profit company right. monetizing your suffering, right. including black infant mortality. They don't want to have it just be a service to keep black people alive. They oh, only want to keep those black children alive. This is the Democrats now, if the company that gives them campaign donations can benefit off of it. Right. So again, promoting black community control over these doula services, over these midwife services, because again, these spaces are very multiracial. Yeah. And surprisingly, so I think most folks would be surprised, even in black cities, the midwifery doula circles are very multiracial, and that can be good if those folks are accountable to the community, are steeped in the community, and the institution is serving the community. But you do have the possibility of this being another space for the white nonprofit industrial complex to right. see a huge problem, a huge legitimate problem, and then produce their own boutique solution to it that they profit off of and control. Right. Because one of the things that we know <laughs> is that folks, I mean, I've been in situations where people will rather give funds to white institutions that are serving black communities and give those funds to black communities or build capacity of black institutions to work within the communities where right exactly where they live. Mm -hmm. So you're absolutely right about that. Right, so you have, uh, as, as we were saying earlier, you have decades later when um, children that black women produce, when they're no longer property of the U.S. government or the, the U.S. owning class. Then you have, again, these forced sterilizations that happened in 1970s. You have between 1933 and 1973, uh, of 7,600 7, women that were being sterilized, 5,000 of them being African-American. You also have early 20th century eugenics, um, believe that measures should be taken to prevent undesirables, right, mm -hmm. from reproduction so that problems such as poverty and substance abuse would be eliminated for future generations. Yeah. Um, so briefly on that point, in the 70s, there's a book called The Protest Psychosis that talks about how schizophrenia switched from being like a sad, melancholic, married white woman's disease to a disease predominantly diagnosed in working class black people, particularly working class like black radicals in terms of mm. politics. Because they'd be going around saying, I think people are after me. I think people are after me. And they're like, you're crazy. And it's like, oh, no, COINTELPRO is a thing. People <laughs> right. are after you. <laughs> and, and they pathologize that. And I think in the case of some black woman, even that was a vector of sterilization in terms of being uh, in, inpatient in mental health crisis. Um, so with that eugenics, I think that the point that I'd want to bring up is historically that eugenics movement is also tied to the philanthropy movement. 
Because the idea is that, oh, you either just do forced sterilizations, but you also have to civilize these folks, right? Mm -hmm. So it's the same logic of these folks are brutes and dangerous. Some people say sterilize them. Other folks say we need to invest in a whole infrastructure to civilize them. And that's where, like, a lot of social work comes out of that mindset. The United mm -hmm. Way comes out of that mindset. Traditional top-down Eurocentric philanthropy is tied to similar eugenic thought. And I think that that gets me to the point where I think in topics of abortion, what I think a lot of people hear and fear is the Republicans are going to take away the right to abortion. So no, you have to vote blue no matter who because Republicans are so bad on this issue of taking away your right to abortion. Mm -hmm. And what I think a lot of folks are adamant to counter but maybe don't feel like they have the ability to say it because it's such an emotionally charged issue. Yeah. It's like, I want my humanity respected comprehensively, right. not just in the right to have government not control my body through abortion. Right. I also deserve, because that's just the government getting off your back. Mm -hmm. That's not the government doing anything to repair the centuries of damage that they've done to your community. Mm -hmm. So if the government's off your back, you get all the abortions you want. You're still poor. You still mm -hmm. got all these other problems. Mm -hmm. What is the positive investment that the community is making because there are many ways that the idea of protecting black women, specifically black women from uh, sexual violence and black women's sexuality has been weaponized mm -hmm. against black people, mm -hmm. specifically by the very people who are claiming to defend our abortion rights. Mm -hmm. I think the example that many people give is the Libyan war. The Libyan war was a explicit Democratic Party, Hillary Clinton special. It was not done by evil conservative neocons. It was done by the same people who are at the Women's March. And their whole argument was Gaddafi is giving soldiers Viagra to rape their political enemies. Mm -hmm. Unfounded, no evidence supporting it, but the idea was just to vilify this black country in the idea of protecting black women got used to justify a violent assault on Libya, murdering Gaddafi, uh, violently. He's actually sexually violated. So, I mean, that is the land of unconfirmed rape. Yes, we came, that. we saw, <laughs> he died. <laughs> did it have anything to do with your visit? No, oh, I'm sure it did. And, you know, uh, Libya is in the crossroads of the black African world and the Arab African world, so they had no plan to rebuild Libya, you know, and what happened was the uh, prisoners of war fighting for Gaddafi, many of whom were black, were basically being, uh, you know, treated like slaves, like literal, like, slavery auctions they had, you know. So the idea of just protecting black women's sort of rights can be weaponized against us in a way that the whole point is I can't vote blue no matter who, mm -hmm. because that's a level of violence that I don't want to be party to with my vote. So if the Democratic Party wants to actually address comprehensive concerns, we need to force them to address the totality of the violence that we face, not expecting them to solve it, but give us the resources that we can solve it ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's the important part where I think a lot of people just um, are scared of the having this reproductive issue that the Republicans are so bad on, giving the Democrats a free pass to do nothing, mm. you know, mm -hmm. and then justifying stuff like Libya as the cost of doing business and avoiding evil Republicans. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think to your point about uh, comprehensive care, I mean, if, if folks are looking at life and, and there is an interest in being comprehensive, then also... It, it would be of interest, I would think, for them to pay attention to the fact that, like, according to the CDC, black women are more likely to die 
in childbirth. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, recent studies show three times more likely to die. So investigate that, unpack that, get resources and information and tool and, and mm -hmm. bring that down. And along those lines, black women are also far more likely to get C-sections. Because mm -hmm. I think that folks like John Haberman, Professor UT Austin, his book Black and Blue, The History of Medical Racism, that same notion from slavery, black women don't feel pain. Right. So you're more likely to cut them open when you don't need to actually get the child out, and that might contribute to a black uh, woman's mortality. But again, this is uh, the limitations of just access to health care mm -hmm. as the solution to everything. Because right. you're getting access to health care, but if the doctor is racist, then <laughs> you know right. that's the downside of just having access as a solution to everything. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So exactly. So, it's, so that's uh, an important part of the conversation. Absolutely. I think the whole thing around looking at it as a totality, um, and I think you, you mentioned it so well a few times, uh, is that the approach has to be comprehensive, right? And when we look at these bills and the policies and um, and what we're advocating for all of these things, it's really good to not only look at, look at the policy or the issue, because of course this, this uh, Senate Bill 8 impacts we could say it impacts women in general, right? But that is very uh, a-contextual, and it's also a-historical. And it doesn't talk about the ways in which it disproportionately impacts black women um, and black families and black communities. And it also doesn't speak to the history um, and what we really need to do when we talk about black women and reproductive Yeah, and I think it goes back to that conversation around how do we have an infrastructure so that before we are at our down baddest, before we're at our most vulnerable, mm -hmm. we have interventions and institutions capable of meeting needs in our community. So we're not at the last ditch effort of, you know, needing an abortion tomorrow or everything's going to go downhill. So I think about prenatal nutrition and things like that. So mm -hmm. when you actually want to have a child and you want to make sure that pregnancy goes well, you need an ecosystem to like help you deal with stress, mm -hmm. help you deal with actual good food in your community because if the only solution we have is food stamps that you you can buy all the you know it, it that doesn't do anything for the actual food ecosystem not being healthy for the you have to work still probably a service economy job which means you got to eat fast food just to survive and like what are the actual interventions that can actually help people be healthy as opposed to just going to the doctor when they're sick you know, some people say we don't have health care in this country, we have sick care. Mm -hmm. So you go when you're sick and they make money off you being sick. It's not actually profitable to keep people healthy. So if we as black folk want to actually address the problems comprehensively, like I'm thinking of like community uh, food system interventions, right? Growing food locally, having people that can cook the food and distribute the food. You know what I mean? So it's not just a box of vegetables, it's an actual meal mm -hmm. that you can eat like as you're living your life. You know, that's not easy. That's no easy solution to that. I know folks are working on that here in Baltimore with things like the Black Black Church Food Security Network, but you need a whole investment in solutions to that. And the point I'm trying to make is that, again, they say because of reproductive rights, vote blue. Democratic Party's not interested in that because the current agricultural food system is their campaign donors. Mm -hmm. They're fine with that. The current system of health care would lose money if you actually invest in the preventative health care, right? So they'll do it here or there as a philanthropic, you know, pet project that they also control. <laughs> but they won't comprehensively invest in that ecosystem of institutions that we can control to deal with something like prenatal nutrition and actually have that be a reproductive health issue. 
in terms of black community control and capacity being a reproductive health issue. I think it's very not coincidental that <laughs> those two things are not seen as synonymous. Um, yeah, I think it's one of those things, just like so many of these topics, right, that are multidimensional, multilayered, and the approach is not, there's not one bullet approach. And a lot of things that came up, I'm sure we'll probably get to in one or two other segments. Absolutely, absolutely. So thank you for watching. We look forward to, in the future, continuing to go in search of Black Power. See you soon.